Good morning, everybody. Well, thank you. Whoever said that? Oh, it was Ernie. He said, welcome home. That's very interesting because, uh, for one, our children uh, really consider this to be their home. This is where they spent uh, some very formative years. And uh, our older daughter, Abby's not with us today. She's at an academy in Arkansas, Watcher the Hills Academy. And we told her, we called her when we were here yesterday, and she said, oh, I want to go home. <laughs> so it's very nice to be here back among friends and so much that's familiar. It's very interesting to go away from someplace for five years and then come back and see what's the same. And I see much that is the same, many of you that we recognize and it's uh, wonderful to see that you're still faithful on Sabbath here worshiping. And there's a lot of things that are not the same. Uh, the property here was not this way when we were here, although we did see the building go up, but um, certainly not the way that it is uh, today. And uh, highways are different and so much has changed around here. So uh, it's very interesting to step back into the, the river. Somebody said you can't step into a river twice. Can't step into the same river twice, and uh, that is really true. Ernie asked me to say something about where we are and what we're doing now. Um, and by the way, for those of you that don't know who I am, um, and my, my wife is here, Chris, down the front row. Our, our younger daughter, Sarah, is here. And, of course, uh, I'm Rob Long, and uh, we worked here in this area for about uh, five years from 2002 until 2007, and we had the good uh, privilege of working with this church on some evangelistic meetings in the past, and I see some faces of people that came to those meetings and are still here worshiping, so that's very, very encouraging uh, for us to see. But uh, we left here in 2007 and uh, went down to Springfield for about a year, and then we're quickly called out to where we are now, which is in Maryland. Clarksville, Maryland. Has anybody here ever been to Clarksville, Maryland? Yes? Okay. Oh, yes. Good. Oh, and back there. Yes, uh, Pastor Campos has lived out there before. So we're pastoring the Triadelphia Seventh-day Adventist Church in Clarksville, Maryland, which is very uh, kind of in between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It's very close to the General Conference out there. And so we're really at the heartbeat of our denomination headquarters if you will and it's a very interesting experience to be there and see what's happening with our world church and i can tell you that uh, a lot of good things are happening with the world church a lot of good vision going forward very committed people and uh, just a lot to praise the lord for and we're very happy to be uh, out there and ministering in, in that area the last uh, three and a half years Okay, so that's what we've been up to, and we're looking forward to getting better acquainted with some of you we haven't met and kind of renewing some friendships after the service. Hope you can stay by for fellowship meal, and then we're also going to be here tonight, and I said last night that we're saving the best for last, and so I hope you'll clear your schedule and come tonight at 6 o'clock for the message called Cry Aloud and the Loud Cry. We're going to talk tonight about why we're still here, what's sort of holding up our
translation into God's kingdom in these last days. And we're going to look at a, uh, what I think is a missing piece of the puzzle that when that is dropped in place, we are going to see the message really go like a fire in the stubble and uh, quickly hasten the Lord's coming. So that's tonight at six o'clock for uh, Cry Aloud and the Loud Cry. Our message this morning is called Peace and Safety and Times of Trouble. So let's have just an added word of prayer upon our study here together. Father in heaven, now as we open our Bibles, we are anxious to have you speak to us as only you can speak to us. Lord, I'll be up here saying words, but we know that you are the the are true interpreter and you're the one that takes the word of God and applies it to our hearts individually and corporately as a church. Lord, we have evangelistic meetings planned and coming up soon. There's a lot of work to be done. We pray that you'll inspire us and in, give us the enthusiasm and zeal that we need to go forward with the work you've called us to do while time still lasts as you give us opportunity. Now speak to us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start tonight or this morning with a quote from the Great Controversy, page 594. I read this last night, and I'll repeat it again this morning. Page 594, Great Controversy says, quote, Before his crucifixion, the Savior explained to his disciples that he was to be put to death and to rise again from the tomb. So Jesus spent a lot of time telling the disciples what was going to happen in the future concerning him, his death on the cross, the crucifixion and his resurrection. But it says when the time of trial came, it found them, the disciples, unprepared. The death of Jesus as fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. Isn't that amazing? They walk with him. They talk with him. They listen to him. They heard clear explanations of what was going to happen in the future concerning him. But when it actually happened, they were completely what? Unprepared. As though he had said nothing. And then this. So in the prophecies, the future is opened before us. The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented. They are what? Clearly presented. But multitudes have no more understanding of these important truths than if they had never been revealed. And the time of trouble will find them unprepared. Wow, when I read that a few years ago, that really sent me scurrying to restudy and reexamine what I thought I already understood and knew about end time events and Bible prophecy. And as I went back and studied more carefully, and more deeply, I was really surprised to find out what I didn't know that would have left me unprepared for the events that are predicted in prophecy as soon to come to pass. And so I want to spend some time this morning talking about some of these things. The world is rapidly coming to an end. And we have the God-given task of warning people about the coming end of the world. But if we don't know for sure what events are going to actually lead up to the end of the world, 
then how can we really effectively warn the people that need to know? Now, we're not the first people to be given this task. Of course, there was Noah and his warning about the flood. There was Lot and his warning about the destruction of Sodom. There were the first century Christians who were announcing the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And here we are today at the end of time called to declare the imminent destruction of the entire world in the last days. Spirit of Prophecy, page 441, says, As the angels of God cease to hold in check the fierce winds of human passion, all the elements of strife will be let loose. Did you catch that? How many elements of strife? All the elements of strife will be let loose. The whole world will be involved in ruin more terrible than that which came upon Jerusalem of old. The Bible simply sums this up in one simple verse in Daniel 12, verse one, where it says there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since the world began. That says a lot, doesn't it? Time of trouble like never was since that time. Now, what can we learn from others who have given the warning message before us? Well, we know one thing. Noah did it and Noah did it right. Amen. He did it right. His earnest appeals went out to the people for 120 long years. Noah warned the world, but he didn't just preach. Noah also prepared. He built an ark. And it struck me recently. Have you thought about this? It wasn't what Noah did with his mouth that saved him and his family. It's what he did with his hands. Amen. It was the practical work of preparing for what he believed in that saved Noah and his family and made him an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. And that's a whole nother subject we could talk about. And I'd be happy to talk with you while we're here about what we are called to do to prepare in a physical way for what we believe spiritually is soon to happen. Noah's hammer and saw spoke more powerfully than his tongue. Now, of course, Lot gave the message, but Lot's effectiveness in giving the message was not as good as Noah's. And one of the problems was that Lot hesitated to leave the what? City himself. And part of Lot's problem, of course, is that he was even living in the city in the first place. We're told that Lot could have accomplished everything he did accomplish for God by working for the city of Sodom from outside the city rather than living inside the city, which caused him to be experiencing the loss of some of his family, namely his children, who had become entwined and integrated into the things of that city. The first century Christians recognized the sign that Jesus had warned them about. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he said, know that its destruction is near. And when Cestius came and he surrounded the city of Jerusalem, but then inexplicably Cestius pulled back his army and left. And it appeared that that Jerusalem was going to be spared from the destruction. But the Christians, they fled, they left. And when Titus returned four years later, not one Christian was there in Jerusalem when that city ultimately fell. 
And so there's an important key that we can uh, we can learn from this example of, of, of Noah and of Lot and of the early first century Christians. And that is that the message seems impossible of fulfillment at the time that it's given. Did you catch that? The message seems impossible of fulfillment at the time that it's given. It had never even rained when Noah gave his message of the coming flood. Fire and brimstone fell out of Sodom out of a clear blue sky, just like today. There was nothing to indicate that Sodom would be destroyed on the day that it was. And of course, Jerusalem was looking forward to long years of prosperity when it fell in 70 A.D. Now, if I say to somebody today, look, the world is coming to an end. They might say, well, how do you know? Haven't people been saying that very thing for an awfully long time? Well, what do we say to that? Well, we could take them to uh, 2 Peter 3, right? 2 Peter 3 and verse 3 says, Knowing this first, that there will come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that's the fallacy of straight line thinking. You know what that fallacy of straight line thinking is? That's the misguided notion that things will just always continue in a straight line like they always have before. We know that's not the case. And Peter brings that out in that chapter when he talks about how the flood interrupted people's straight line thinking. And yet people say, where's the evidence that the world is going to end? Now, when somebody says, where's where's your evidence that the world is going to come to an end? What do we say to them? What what evidence do we give them? Well, I think generally speaking, might be some exceptions, but we say, well, look at the wars and the rumors of wars and look at the famines and look at the diseases and look at the earthquakes in different places. and Look at the crime and the violence. Look at the pornography. Look at the rate of abortion. Look at look at the, the, the rate of drug use and alcoholism and, and, and divorce and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we 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 list this litany of things And oftentimes people are completely unfazed by that. Have you noticed that? You know what they say, right? What do they say? Well, yeah, but, you know, there's always been wars and there's always been earthquakes. There's always been crime. There's always been immorality and violence and all the rest. Are they right? They're right, aren't they? They are right. And so we know we have no more to say to them at that point. Right. And the more this happens to us, I think the less inclined we are to warn the world that is about to be destroyed. But what I want to show you today here this morning is that rather than backing off from warning the world about coming destruction, we should actually be more emboldened to warn them of coming destruction, because the question, where is the evidence of its coming is itself the evidence of its coming. And the more that question is asked, where is the evidence? Where is the sign? Where is the indication? The more that's asked, actually, the closer we are to the end. How can we be sure about that? Well, that's what Jesus said, didn't he? Let's go back and read in Matthew 24 again. What Darren was, or I'm sorry, Dan was reading earlier in Matthew 24 and verse one. Get your Bible there and 
Go to Matthew 24 and verse 1. It says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Let me ask you, was Jesus predicting a, an event of destruction here? He was, wasn't he? And he was talking about the destruction of the strongest, most solid edifice that the disciples could possibly think of the temple in its time. And so in verse 3, it says, when he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and they said to, they said to him, tell us, when shall these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? And Jesus answered their question about the sign of his coming and the end of the world. He answered the question, verse 4, and says, take heed, that means be careful that no man, what? Deceives you. So evidently, when we think about the last days and we think about Jesus coming and the destruction of the world, we've got to be careful because it's easy to be deceived in this area. And then he goes on to talk about the way that people are deceived. And he says in verse 6, you're going to hear about what? Wars and rumors of wars. But notice what he says about wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you be not what? Don't be troubled by that. These things must come to pass. But he says the end that you're asking about is not what? Not yet. So he says, don't fall into the trap of thinking that there's going to be a lot of war going on at the end. Because you may be deceived. Verse seven, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There'll be pestilences. There'll be earthquakes in different places. But then in verse eight, notice what he says. All of these things are just the what? Well, they're just the beginning, not the end, the beginning of sorrows. Now drop down to verse 33 in Matthew 24 and verse 33. Notice what he says here. So likewise, ye, when you shall see how much all these things, what does that include? Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, all the rest. When you see all these things, you can know that it is what? Near. Does he say you'll know that it is here? He doesn't say you'll know that it's here. You're going to know that it is near. And how near is it? Even at the door. When somebody's at your house, standing on your porch, knocking on the door... They're near, aren't they? But they're not yet in the house. They're near, but you can't, I guess, truthfully say yet that they're here. Okay? And Jesus said, you're going to know when it's near, even at the doors. Now go down to verse 36. In verse 36, he says, But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. Now, there's a big question right here. What day is he talking about in verse 36? What day and hour is he talking about? Well, we need to read on to figure it out. Verse 37, he says, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For in the days that were what? Before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage 
until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Notice verse 36. He's talking about some day and some hour that nobody knows except the father. And then he talks about the days leading up to a day. Now, the days lead up to what day, according to what we just read? Huh? Wait a minute. Let's let's look at it carefully. He's talking about the days that were before the what? Flood. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving marriage until what day? The day that Noah did what? I want you to notice here, he's not stressing the day that the flood comes, is he? He's stressing here the day that Noah entered into the ark. Now, what were they doing up until the day that Noah entered the ark? They were just having normal life, right? Now, if you look at verse 39, it says, They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Let me ask you, what did they not know until the flood came? Something to do with the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, what happened on the day that Noah entered the ark? The door of the ark was what? Shut. Now, did it start to rain that day? Did the flood come that day? No. In fact, the Bible says that Noah and his family were in the ark how long? Seven days before the flood came. But by the time the flood came, the people finally realized something they didn't know until the flood came. And what they didn't know is that the day that Noah entered into the ark, their probation, what? Closed. Did any man know that day or hour? No. Not even the angels. Only God. And so the point is that probation closed for the people of Noah's day. At a time when there was no evidence of a flood, it hadn't even rained, there was nothing to indicate anything out of the ordinary was going to happen. Probation closed in a time of peace and what? And they didn't realize that until the flood came and took them all away. Now, do you think there were some people trying to get on the ark when the flood came? Oh, yes. Right. The straight line thinking. And so let's ask this question. What is it that comes as a thief in the night? You know, we do evangelistic meetings and sometimes we title our sermon, The Thief in the Night. And we, we, we talk about the rapture, right? Many people believe that the second coming of Jesus like a thief in the night. And I've explained this, you know, that No, when it says Jesus comes like a thief in the night, it's not talking about the fact that he's coming secretly or silently. It's just talking about that he's coming unexpectedly, right? And while that is true, I think there's more to this than than we've thought. Because we ask the question, what is it that comes as a thief in the night? It's not Jesus' actual appearing that comes as a thief in the night. In fact, he's going to come gradually just like the disciples saw him go up into heaven. Amen. So we're going to actually watch Jesus coming from afar, from a distance. 
First starting out like a, a cloud the size of a man's hand in the east and getting bigger and bigger as it comes gradually closer. His appearing, it's not going to be something that's undetected. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be glorious. In fact, it says every eye will what? See him. Now, that doesn't seem like a thief in the night to me. I mean, when a thief comes to your house, um, you don't have several hours to watch him coming down the street. Right. And yet apparently that's the way Jesus is coming back gradually closer and closer. So the thief in the night actually applies to the close of what? Probation. Which leads to the time of trouble and the seven last plagues. And no one on earth will know when probation is ended. It will be unknown. It will be undetected. It will be very sudden and unexpected. In manuscript 153, the spirit of prophecy says the heavenly messenger said, quote, the time of trouble has come as a thief in the night, as the Lord warned you that it would come in quote. What comes like a thief in the night? The time of trouble, which is before the second coming. Review and Herald, November 9th, 1905, quote, silently unnoticed as a midnight thief will come the decisive hour which marks the fixing of every man's destiny, end of quote. And we call that the close of probation. He that is unjust, let him be what? Unjust still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. That is the moment that fixes every person's destiny. And none of us will know. When that moment has come. Now, here's another key to figuring all this out. When destruction comes and the seven last plagues fall, the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, it will not be preceded by wars and rumors of wars, by famines and earthquakes and diseases or any of the other signs that we typically point to as evidence of the coming destruction. Isn't that interesting? Time of trouble will not be preceded by wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, diseases, or the other signs that we point to typically as evidence of coming destruction. On the contrary, the coming destruction will actually be immediately preceded by the apparent absence of all of those things that we normally look at. And you know this first, didn't Peter say in First Thessalonians 5, 1 of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. Yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Verse three, for when they shall say what? Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And it says they will not escape. So like Noah, like Lot, like the first century Christians, we are supposed to warn people of impending destruction at the very time when it looks like everything is going to continue and continue as better than ever before. Isn't that amazing? 
You get more of an appreciation for Noah, don't you? To stand up and do what he did at the time that he did it. When there apparently was nothing to indicate that it was going to happen. So the lesson I think we need to learn as Seventh-day Adventist Christians is that we can't wait for more things to go wrong before we give the warning that we're supposed to give. If we only warn people in times of crisis, then we won't be found warning them when they need to be warned the most. Right? Now, when people say, where's the, uh, where's the sign of his coming? That is actually the sign. And if you drop down to Matthew 24 and verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations. And then shall the end come. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about this and figure out what does it really mean when it says this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations There's more there than meets the eye or what we might commonly have thought of, I think, when it comes to simply spreading the gospel. But we do know this. The last thing to happen before probation closes, the last thing to happen before the plagues begin to fall is the preaching of the gospel in all the world. And think about it. Since the plagues are so awful and the plagues are so widespread, God's loving message of warning And mercy must be that good, must be that powerful, and must be that widespread. Because God is not willing that any should what? Perish. But that all should come to repentance. And so we have these three angels' messages that come just before the close of probation. And how widespread are they? I saw another angel, John says, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Saying with what kind of voice? A loud voice. Fear God and give give glory to Him. The hour of His judgment is come. Worship Him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. She's made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And so, before the destiny of souls is fixed, before probation closes, before a single plague falls on the earth, the gospel and the three angels' messages must be heard by every inhabitant of the world, and that is our awesome, challenging, and privileged task. Spirit Prophecy says, The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening. The prophecies which were filled in the outpouring of the former rain are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain. Servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration They will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Signs and wonders will follow the believers. Satan also works with lying wonders 
even bringing down fire from heaven in the sight of men. And thus the inhabitants of the earth will be brought to take their stand. And so human probation closes when there is peace and safety on earth, when the prospects for life on earth have never, ever looked better. Just like it did in Noah's day, just like it did in Lot's day, and just like it did in the day of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now I want to ask a question. Why does God do this? Why does God close probation, shut the door to the ark, as it were, in a time of peace and safety and unparalleled prosperity? Why does he do that? I mean, couldn't he save more people by making the last moments before the close of probation moments of extreme crisis? Are you thinking with me? Wouldn't you think that, I mean, make it as crisis laden as possible just before the end of probation so that you can save more people that way? Doesn't that make sense? Huh? I mean, when there's an earthquake, what happens the next weekend in the churches? They're full, right? Financial crisis, financial depression, all kinds of problems. People go to church. People get religion at that time, right? So couldn't God save more people by making the last moments before the close of probation moments of extreme crisis? What's the answer to that? The answer has to be no, because if it was yes, God would do it, right? Because he wants people to be saved, eternally saved. But he's not going to do that. And the reason is that if we only get ready for God and his kingdom in an extreme crisis, we won't be able to live in his kingdom forever where there'll never be a crisis of any kind. Have you thought about that? Any earthquakes in heaven? Any financial problems in the earth made new? Any crime, violence, immorality? No. Only eternal peace and what? Safety, right? How many of you believe the kingdom of God is going to be eternal peace and safety? Do you believe that? Oh, yes. It says we're going to delight ourselves in the abundance of peace. Nothing will hurt or destroy in God's holy mountain. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. No crisis of any kind for eternity in the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. And you see, it's what we do in times of peace and safety that is more indicative of what we're going to live like in God's eternal kingdom, isn't it? And so if in times of peace and safety here, if those times cause us to turn back to the world and be comfortable here, to settle down here, to live for the things that this world has to offer here, then in God's kingdom when it comes, if we were there, we would still be longing for this world, wouldn't we? If the only way that God can pry our hands off the earthly things is by some crisis, then we really haven't stopped loving the world and the things of the world, have we? And so the appeal at this point in the message is that we've got to learn to serve the Lord with all our hearts in the good times as well as the bad. And I'll just say, it's more difficult in the good times 
than it is in the bad. The book of Job. We look at the book of Job and we're amazed by the faithfulness of Job in those times of terrible suffering and crisis. But the amazing thing to me is not that Job was faithful in the crisis. The amazing thing is when you open the first chapter of the book of Job, Job is so prosperous that he's faithful to God in times of prosperity. That's the amazing thing. And I think that's why God allowed him to go through the crisis, because God said, man, if he's so faithful when he's blessed and prospering, I know he's going to be faithful to me in the times of trial. So we can't wait for more things to go wrong before we get ready for God and his kingdom, can we? If we do, we're never really going to get ready. How many of us, if we were honest might be saying in our hearts, you know, I'm watching the signs. I'm, I'm watching the economy. I'm watching the politics. I'm watching the natural disasters. And when, when things reach a certain state, I'm going to make my move spiritually. I'm going to kick into high gear. I'm going to get my house in order. I'm going to prepare. When things reach a certain state. Don't misunderstand. God does use all these things, but how does he use them? He doesn't use these things to get us ready. He uses them to tell us that our time to get ready is running out. Are you with me? And so as we see these things proliferating, we need to know that our time is running out to get ready. But getting ready is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts who causes us to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength Love for God is what's going to get us ready, and that's what's going to keep us ready through good times and through bad. The only thing that will really work. So in the end, things don't get worse and worse. They get what? Huh? I'm talking about at the very end, just before the close of probation, they get better and better. And it's going to look as though the long-awaited millennium has arrived. And who will be there posing as Christ? Satan himself, right? Working miracles to testify to the fact that the millennium has come. The earthly millennium has arrived. The world, we're told, will appear to have been converted to Christ just before the close of probation. And so the question we have to ask is, Who will love the Lord Jesus more than the very best this world has to offer? Who will love the Lord with all their hearts when they are offered the very best the world has to offer on its very best day? Who would love him then? Is time running out? If it is, that means we have very little time left to come to know God, to develop that relationship with him, to to come to love him more than anything else in this world. The antediluvians, they eventually got to the ark, didn't they? But they were too late. And would it really have done any good to open the door to them at that point? They didn't love the Lord. That's not where their heart was. The foolish virgins finally got to the wedding, right? It was too late. 
Would it have done any good to open the door to them? They didn't really love the Lord with all their heart. And many Christians, yea, many Adventists, dare we say, might awake at the end, but be too late to form that relationship with God, loving Him with all our hearts. Well, let's just go through in rapid succession the end time scenario as it's depicted in the Bible to recap. Okay, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Amen. Famines. Yes. Diseases, earthquakes, natural disasters. Economic disasters, crime, violence, mounting immorality. These things are going to get worse and worse. Are we seeing that? At some point, we don't know when, but at some point, people are going to start to recognize that these are judgments from who? God's judgments, right? On the earth. And that is going to be the catalyst to launch a religious revival, part and parcel of which will be the passage and the enforcement of religious laws, including the legislation of the day of worship, first here in America, which is the forming of the image of the beast, religious laws enforced by the state, which is, by the way, a violation of our Constitution and First Amendment. But the revival will appear to be working. And apparently the disasters and things are going to be, begin to diminish and are going to begin to disappear. And so the false religious movement will be given credit for the improving conditions on earth. These laws enforcing the day of worship will be urged upon the nation with greater force and greater strength with penalties attached for breaking them. These laws of worship will bring to a desperately needed period of peace and safety to our nation coming off the time of trouble, the little time of trouble and its crippling natural disasters. As other nations around are still suffering the devastating effects of these judgments from God, they will begin to inquire as to how how we have found this peace and safety. And where will they look? They'll look here, won't they? And we'll tell the other nations they should do what we have done. Make an image to the beast. Pass laws of a religious nature enforced by the state. And so Protestant America, we're told, will turn all the nations of the world and the world religions to Rome by honoring the day of worship instituted by Rome in place of the clear commandment to keep the seventh day Sabbath holy. This is the false revival of the very last days. As a false revival takes shape, a true revival will begin and the angel of Revelation 18 comes down with great power to lighten the world with the glory of God. The latter rain of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. We give the third angel's message in great power. Miracles, signs and wonders will follow us. And so these things will be happening on both sides. Our message will oppose the popular movement, expose it as a deception We'll preach the gospel of salvation, announce the hour of God's judgment, call the world to worship the creator. 
on the seventh day Sabbath, decry the fall of Babylon, come out of her, my people, and warn the world against receiving the mark of the beast. And so with these two competing revivals, the world will be brought to take its stand just before the close of probation. May we be among those who are receiving the seal of God, a settling into the truth so that we cannot be moved from it. And may we be the people that are warning the world as Noah did, as Lot did, as our early forefathers in the very first century did, that the end of all things is at hand, that Jesus is coming soon, but even more importantly, before he comes, the door of the ark is what? Closing. And people need to run into that ark of safety while there is still time. May we be the ones inside that ark inviting people to come in to the salvation. The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the Bible says. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Now, tonight, we're going to look at a missing piece of this end time puzzle and find out why we are still here. Why, in spite of the fact that we hold lots of evangelism, we spend lots of money and put forth lots of effort. We have satellite programs and and uh, communications going out to nearly the whole world now. And yet in North America. Is the church growing in North America? Hmm? Not really. Very, very little incremental growth. Why is that? What's the solution to that? Tonight, we're going to look at that. And I think you're going to be very encouraged, challenged, but very encouraged to see what will bring this all together and uh, lead to the outpouring of the latter rain. So that's cry aloud and the loud cry tonight at six o'clock. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we thank you for the message of Jesus to the disciples there in Matthew 24. As we think about the end of time, he said, be careful, don't be deceived. There's an event that happens before Jesus comes. The close of probation in a time of peace and safety. At a time when it looks like prospects for life on earth have never, ever been better. At a time when there's no evidence of coming destruction. Lord, you're testing us through our prosperity to see if we'll be faithful to you. Even when this world has so much to offer us, will we live not for this world, but for the world to come? Will we be like Abraham who looked for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God and lived as a pilgrim and a stranger in this world, waiting for his eternal inheritance. Bless us with that kind of love for you and trust and faith in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.